Our reading this morning is from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. You can find that in the Church Bibles on page 1183. That's Colossians, chapter 1, verse 15 to 23. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Well, do you want to keep that passage uh, open? And let me pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, as we look into your word of truth together now, we pray that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus, fully pleasing to you. In his name we pray, amen. In the Bible, uh, the Christian life is sometimes compared to a running race. Um, Not in the sense that Christians are competing against one another for a limited number of podium places. Um, That is not right. There's going to be plenty of room in the new creation. Um, But a race in the sense that the Christian life requires strenuous, ongoing effort. Last week, we started to think about the danger of being what they call in athletics a DNF, a did-not-finish-in-the-Christian-race. And what a terrible thing to set out following Jesus, but not to make it to the finish line. And there are all sorts of reasons why we might fear that we might not make it to the finish line. And perhaps we are just very aware of our own sin. Uh, Maybe one moment in particular from our past keeps rearing its ugly head. If I can't get past it, what makes me think that God will? Maybe we just can't see ourselves making progress in holiness. We seem to be no more patient with our children or our parents, uh, no more able to forgive those who hurt us today than we ever have been. 
We know that a holy God won't let unchanged sinners into his perfect new world, and we'd ruin it. And so maybe I won't make it to the finish line. Uh, Maybe I'm just not sure that I'm doing enough or, or, or feeling enough. I'm trying to live with Jesus, my King, trying to trust him as my Savior, but don't other Christians, other churches, have a more impressive experience of the Christian life? Don't they seem to feel it all a bit more strongly than I seem to? Am I going to make it all the way when my Christian life is so ordinary and humdrum? Maybe my mental health struggles mean that some days I'm not sure I can keep going with anything, let alone to keep going with the strenuous, ongoing effort of living for Jesus. Maybe we feel we live in times of unprecedented opposition to biblical ethics. And if I'm not all that worried about myself, uh, maybe this is one that makes me worry very much about my children. I'm surely at school, or frankly, any time they leave the house, or perhaps even look out the window, and they're being so brainwashed by a world gone mad on identity issues that even if they're following Jesus now, there's really no hope of them making it all the way to the finish line. All sorts of things might make Christians ask, am I going to make it all the way? Are my children going to make it all the way? But this passage encourages us to ask, not so much am I going to make it all the way, but is Jesus really big enough to get me all the way? And as soon as we've rephrased it like that, we know the answer is going to be yes. Um, We're going to take the next few minutes to fill our minds with big thoughts of Jesus so that we might start to really believe that he will get us all the way. And by the way, if you're still deciding uh, whether or not to become a Christian, uh, you too need to know if Jesus would get you all the way to the finish line. There's no point in starting to run the Christian race if you aren't like to finish. And we're glad you're here. God is speaking to you too. In this passage, the Apostle Paul gives us a picture of Jesus, a Jesus who is mind-blowingly, universe-dominatingly, life-changingly preeminent. This is a Jesus who is so big that if we are only trusting him, and however weakly we think we are trusting him, uh, we can have rock-solid confidence that he will get us all the way through life into God's perfect new creation. Paul tells us two big truths, the second one in two parts. Um, All things were created through the Son, and all things were reconciled through the Son. And specifically, you believers. First of all, all things were created through the Son, uh, verses 15 to 17. And by the way, I'm going to use the word uh, Son a lot this morning. Um, And every time, I I don't think I mean S-U-N at any point. It's lovely to have some October sunshine um, here, but I'm not talking about the Son. I'm talking about the S-O-N, the Son. Jesus, uh, God's Son. That is how Paul has just talked about him at the end of verse 13, the beloved Son, chapter 1, verse 13. Um, That is still who he's talking about in verse 15. He, Jesus, the beloved Son of God, is the image of the invisible God. Genesis says that uh, humanity was created in the image of God. Humans are designed to represent God, to rule creation on his behalf. 
And so Paul might be saying uh, that Jesus is human, uh, fully human, perhaps perfectly, perhaps sinlessly human uh, in the image of God, like human beings are. And of course, Jesus is that. But I think Paul's saying something stronger. Um, Ordinary human beings are created in the image of God. But look carefully at verse 15. Uh, The Son is the image of God. Uh, He doesn't represent God sort of at a step removed like we do. Uh, God the Son from all eternity shared every attribute of his father. And when he was born as a baby in Bethlehem, uh, the invisible God became visible. Jesus is not another religious guru, uh, humbly pointing people away from himself towards the divine. Um, He is the divine. Verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. To be the firstborn here means to be the one with all the rights of inheritance. Uh, The whole of creation belongs to the Son. Jesus is not merely a prophet, tragically martyred for speaking truth to power. Uh, He is the incarnate Son who owns and rules the universe. Verse 16, for by him, or as the footnote says, by means of him, um, literally in him, all things were created. The Son is what we might call the agent of all creation. God the Father created all things by means of, in, through God the Son. And notice that if all things were created through the Son, then the Son is not himself one of the things that was created. And the atheist Richard Dawkins seems largely to have um, faded from view. These days, Jesus' opponents do come and go, don't they? Um, but one of Dawkins' favorite questions was, um, if God created the world, well, who created God? It's a daft thing to ask. Uh, no one created God. He's eternal. Um, he is the one thing in the universe that wasn't created. And Paul would add, yes, and as the one through whom all things were created... Jesus shares the identity of the eternal, uncreated God. And Paul really does mean all things. Verse 16, for by means of him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And all physical stuff, was created through Jesus. Planets and peanuts and mountains and mice. And more than that, all authority structures were created through Jesus. National and local governments and economic forces and religious hierarchies. They may rule in ignorance of the Lord Jesus or even in conscious opposition to him but they never rule over him. Paul actually assumes that behind human powers lie spiritual powers, and they too were created through the Son and are subject to him. So of course the state is by and large opposed to God. We don't live in unprecedented times on that front. This is the standard Christian experience. But is that going to stop us making it all the way to the finish line? 
Of course not. All human authority and the spiritual forces that lie behind them were created, are ruled by, belong to Jesus. How could they stop him from getting his people all the way to the finish line? Actually, for me, perhaps the most impressive claim in this quite long list of quite impressive claims is the last two little words of verse 16. All things were created through him and for him. So imagine an an indiscreet butler takes you on a tour of some nobleman's enormous country house. I mean, room after room, you say, oh, what's that for? And the butler replies, well, that's for Sir Eric to summon me with. That's his bell. You say, what's that for? That's for for Sir Eric uh, to grow his tomatoes in. And what's that for? That's for Sir Eric to pick his teeth with or whatever. Everything in the universe, whether it recognizes it or not, exists for the purposes of the Lord Jesus. Everyone in the universe, whether they acknowledge it or not, exists for the purposes of the Lord Jesus. So if it's Jesus' purpose to get me all the way to the finish line, what in all creation is going to thwart that plan? Whatever we might think will stand in the way is a thing that was created for Jesus to achieve his purposes. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The Son is before all things in time. He existed before creation existed. And he's before all things in rank as the most important being in the universe. And in the Son, all things hold together. This is hard to get your head around, but at this very moment, the universe is being held together by a conscious act of will of the Son. If for a split second he somehow sort of lost concentration, every atom in the universe would fly apart or cease to exist or something equally unimaginable, I suppose. Don't you think that this might be a Jesus who is big enough to get me all the way to the finish line? All things were created through the sun and for the sun. From the vast nuclear inferno of the greatest star to the smallest hair on the littlest toe of the tiniest ant, if ants have toes. From the cutest newborn baby to the scariest dictator, all things were created through the sun. Second, all things were reconciled through the sun. The mind-blowing vision of Jesus that Paul has given us so far is still too small. I mean, it's too small a thing for Jesus to be merely supreme over all creation. Look at verse 18. And he, the Son, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So sure, Jesus is the ruler of this world, the one through whom and for whom everything in this world exists, visible and invisible. And sure, that that is a big deal. But don't you know there's a world to come? And there is a coming day of resurrection and judgment. On that day, all those who've died throughout the whole of human history will be raised physically from the dead. 
those who've been forgiven by Jesus to eternal life, and those who've rejected Jesus to eternal judgment. The world to come lies on the far side of that day of judgment, except that the world to come has broken into this world in the resurrection of Jesus on that first Easter. He is its beginning, um, the firstborn from the dead, uh, the crack in the dam of death. That means that one day the whole thing is going to come crashing down. God raised Jesus from the dead, way ahead of everyone else, uh, to make him the first member of that new world, to give him the pride of place in that new world. So that in everything, both in this world and the next, Jesus might be preeminent. And if Jesus has already been made the preeminent member of the world to come, and believers in Jesus have already been made kind of honorary members of it too, the church, Christians, are even now connected to the resurrected Lord Jesus like a body is connected to a head living under his authority and direction. The word church really means gathering or assembly. When Jesus, uh, believers in Jesus meet together around his word like this on a Sunday morning, um, we are a little outpost of the world to come, a little taster of the new creation. Verse 19, For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And this is temple language. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle, and then the temple was the place where God dwelt, the place filled with his presence. Actually, the place where reconciliation took place, the fixing of the mucked-up relationship between a holy God and sinful humanity through the daily offering of the blood of sacrificial animals. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that whole temple institution. He is now the place where God dwells. His death on the cross fully and finally deals with our sin in a way that the Old Testament sacrifices never truly did. And so he is the one who truly fixes our mucked-up relationship with God, leaving us at peace with him. And Paul's original readers in Colossae seem to be worried about the fact that they are Gentiles, they're not Jews. And they've turned from idols to worship the true God, the God of Israel, through his son Jesus. But they're starting to worry if perhaps they ought to be keeping Israel's laws, um, laws about going to the temple and eating kosher food and all the rest. And what a helpful thing this must have been for those guys to hear. You really think that the temple in Jerusalem is kind of missing from your Christian life? No, that temple was just a temporary shadow of the reality that's found in Jesus. He is the place of God's dwelling, the place of reconciliation. You have him. You don't need the physical temple. Actually, what a helpful thing for us to hear. You think you're not doing enough, not feeling enough to be confident of making it to the finish line of the Christian life? And there is nothing of all God's fullness that does not dwell in Jesus. There is no reconciliation, no further reconciliation with God to be had 
outside of Jesus. We need not, indeed we must not, look anywhere other than Jesus for all we need to run the Christian life to the very end. God could not be more present with us than he is if we have Jesus. And we could not be more reconciled to God than we already are if we have Jesus. By the way, it might sound slightly odd um, for Paul to say that through Jesus, God has reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Um, isn't, it, isn't it Christians who have been reconciled? Um, and it's true that you know, deck chairs and otters and things, they're not rebels against God in the same way that we are. And so they don't need reconciliation in quite the way that people do. And Paul can't mean um, that even people who hate the Lord Jesus will spend eternity living with him in the new creation, and presumably hating every minute of it. And the Bible is quite clear that those who persist in rejecting Jesus in this world will be eternally rejected by Jesus in the world to come. But I think the point here is to emphasize the cosmic consequences of the reconciliation that Jesus has won for his people through the cross. In bringing the Gentiles into God's people and God's people back into relationship with himself, and God has begun to put the whole universe back together. A rebellious people led to a ruined creation and reconciled people are the first shoots of the completely renewed creation that God will unveil at Jesus' return. There is a sense in which God has reconciled the whole of creation through the Son. And it is the particular reconciliation of Christians that Paul is most interested in, which is where he goes next. Verse 21, and you, um, all things were created through the Son, all things were reconciled through the Son, specifically you believers. Um, Specifically, he has reconciled you believers, verses 21 to 23. If in some sense all things were reconciled to God through the Son, then God has most definitely reconciled to himself you believers in Jesus, however nervous you might feel about making it to the finish line. Um, Don't kid yourselves, says Paul, you were hostile. Verse 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... And this is what was once true of Christians. If you are not yet a Christian, um, you need to know that this is currently how God sees you. Though it doesn't need to stay that way. I'm alienated. You might think of God as a distant relative whom you happen not to have seen recently. um, But he is right there at every moment of every day. And you are blanking him. And he is highly offended hostile in mind. Perhaps we don't feel any great sense of hostility towards God. We might, we might not. Um, Don't forget that you can hate someone just as effectively by ignoring them as by shouting at them. Doing evil deeds. I mean, really, Paul? I'm not perfect, but I'm not an axe murderer. And yet, if we're honest, um, each of us can look back on things that we have done and said and thought and that we are deeply ashamed of. Now, Sigmund Freud and secular counsellors ever since insist that the problem isn't actual guilt. Um, It's just the feeling of guilt. If you can only persuade yourself 
um, that it's all your parents' fault or something. Uh, Perhaps you can make the feeling go away. But the Christian has a much better strategy. Uh, When that particular sin from the past rears its ugly head and the devil whispers to us, you'll never make it to the finish line. And you can't forget that sin. God won't either. And we don't have to suppress it. We don't have to downplay it. We don't have to shift the blame for our sin. Um, Christians can confidently reply to the devil, uh, yeah, um, that is exactly what I once was like. You were hostile, says Paul, but now God has reconciled you. Verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. At the cross, Jesus took on all my sin and faced all his father's anger at my sin. Um, Or since Jesus is fully God, we could alternatively say that at the cross, God chose to absorb all of his anger in himself. Either way, both my sin, which alienates me from God, and God's anger, which alienates him from me, um, are dealt with. We are reconciled. And actually, Paul looks ahead to the finish line when we will stand before God on the last day. Maybe we see so little progress in our Christian lives that we expect on that day to be cringing before God in abject shame. That's not how Paul pictures the day. God has now reconciled you in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That is how God will see us on the last day because of what Jesus has done for us. And we're not going to ruin his perfect new world entirely by his grace. And we're going to fit in just fine. Sure, you believers in Jesus were hostile, but God has reconciled you. Now, just continue. All you need to do is to continue trusting in the same gospel that Paul has preached all over the world. You are reconciled, verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You might think that Paul has suddenly introduced a note of uncertainty I mean, he's been going along very nicely, reassuring us that Jesus is big enough to get us all the way to the finish line. But now he undoes all that good work by saying, of course, you're going to need a really strong kind of faith, this kind of stable and steadfast faith. I mean, is your faith up to the job? I don't think that's what's going on. I think Paul's using a bunch of different terms to say, you just need to keep trusting Jesus. I mean, it's not the strength of your faith that matters, but the object of your faith. So imagine two people on a plane headed for New York. Uh, One's an aeronautical engineer with every reason for having 100% confidence that this plane is going to get her to her destination. And the person in the seat next to her is terrified of flying. I mean, hears every rattle, feels every bump. He's not at all sure that he's going to make it to New York, but he had just the absolute minimum amount of faith in aeroplanes required for him to get on board, and there he is. Which of them will make it to New York? Both. 
They've put their faith in the same reliable object. The relative strength of their faith makes no difference to the destination, just to their experience of the journey. Getting to the finish line of the Christian faith is not a matter of having an unusually strong kind of faith. Though if you want to make the most of the journey, take every opportunity to strengthen it. Getting to the finish line is simply a matter of continuing to trust the gospel, uh, the message about Jesus, and not moving on to trust in other things instead, or in addition, I mean, don't get out of the plane when you're halfway over the sea. That will affect your destination. Um, But why would you do that? Why wouldn't you stick with Jesus when he's so mind-blowingly awesome? There's lots of reasons we could fear being a DNF, a did not finish in the Christian race. But when we hold those reasons up next to Jesus, they start to look rather small. The Son of God is the awesome agent of all creation, the one through whom God has reconciled to himself all things, and believers in particular. We need to stop asking, am I going to make it all the way to the finish line? And ask instead, is Jesus big enough to get us all the way to the finish line? Because when we ask that question, the answer's obvious. What could possibly stand in his way? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for creating all things through your beloved Son and for reconciling us to yourself through him. Please give us a bigger picture of the Lord Jesus that causes us to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that we heard. We pray in the name of the glorious Lord Jesus. Amen.